Rusty Quill presents. Due to the impact of the worldwide COVID-19 quarantines, domestic violence is on the rise in many areas and some victims are now unable to escape or avoid their abusers. If you or somebody you know is experiencing violence, please reach out for help. Most nations and municipalities have phone numbers for 24-hour helplines and I'll list some for majority English-speaking nations in a moment. If you are afraid for somebody's life or safety, do not hesitate to call emergency services. 911 in the United States and Canada, 999 in the United Kingdom, and 000 in Australia. Dialing 112 in most European nations will also connect you with emergency services. If you suspect or are involved in a domestic violence situation in the United States, call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1 800 799 SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. In Australia, the national hotline is 1-800-RESPECT. That's 1-800-737-7328. In the United Kingdom, call 0808-2000-247. In Canada, you can reach the Assaulted Women's Helpline at 1-866-863-0511. Nothing on earth disqualifies you from receiving help if you need it. There are people who will help you if you're unmarried, if you're a man, if you identify as LGBTQ, if you are using drugs. It does not matter. Folks out there care and they will help you. They just need to know who you are and where you are. You are worth saving. We are in this together, everybody. Look out for each other, wash your hands, and stay safe out there. Love it or hate it, most everybody can't get through this life without doing it. And when you're born working class, there's no doubt the work is going to be hard. Sometimes, in fact, you don't just feel like you're working, but like you're being preyed upon by forces much larger than yourself. Massive, nebulous parasites that suck away the minutes of your life and leave you with very little after all is said and done. Hello. My name is Tyler Bell, and I'm the host of the West Side Fairy Tales and the writer and narrator of the story you're about to hear. This month's tale concerns the handful of men working for a small moving company in Portland. They're tasked with emptying the contents of a massive house west of the city, the ancient woodland mansion of a recently deceased woman. But as they dig deeper into the house over the coming months, they find more than just cobwebs linger in the halls. But we'll get to all that in a moment. First, we have this month's recommendations. This month's literature recommendation is the 1989 novel Remains of the Day by Kazuo Ishiguro. Set in post-World War II Great Britain, Remains is narrated in the first person by Stevens, an aging butler of a formerly grand estate. The plot revolves around a road trip he takes at the urging of his new employer, a wealthy American named Faraday. On his trip, Stephen reminisces about his lifelong employment as a butler, most spent in the service of the disgraced, Nazi-sympathizing Lord Darlington, 
a failed potential romance between himself and a former housekeeper at the Darlington estate, and his own place in a United Kingdom moving rapidly away from the society he was raised in. Remains is an excellent novel that touches on themes of class and dignity, wealth and duty, and the value of the days which a man spends in service to others. If you like works such as Ian McEwan's Atonement or especially Downton Abbey, then this book will certainly check the boxes for you. It's not especially thrilling, but it is exceptionally well-written and wonderfully comfy. Definitely worth checking out. This month's random horror recommendation is the 2001 psychological horror film Session 9, directed by Brad Anderson. The film follows an asbestos removal crew as they attempt to fulfill an incredibly grueling job, removing all the asbestos in a defunct insane asylum in just a week. Filmed at the real-life Danvers State Mental Hospital in Danvers, Massachusetts, the film is worth watching sheerly for the atmosphere. Most every prop you see in the movie and basically all the set dressing is just stuff left over in the hospital. This oppressive atmosphere is on display in the movie as well, as the men slowly grow more haggard from the intense schedule and sanity starts to slip. They start seeing stuff and hearing stuff, and one of them even starts listening to the recorded therapy sessions of a former patient, moving ever closer to the titular Session 9. Session 9 is a great lost classic, in my opinion. One of the movies that I just sort of stumbled on while watching Netflix around six years ago. At the time it was released, it was lost in the teen thriller and slasher revival of the early 2000s. And I think a lot of people just didn't get it. I consider it a blue-collar version of The Shining. From the incredible atmosphere provided by the setting to an almost dreamlike pace of the shooting and editing, it's for sure one of those uh, what-the-fuck-did-I-just-watch type movies that you'll either love or hate. It's always streaming somewhere, so check it out when you get a second. Now, without further ado, today's story. The Move. Gentlemen, we had to call him out of retirement. Bookie said in a deep voice, slapping Marlowe on the back as Dawes walked up the hill from his car. Our need was too great. This great American nation couldn't be left to suffer without him. Our hero, our guiding light, Dawes freely. Bookie slid off the back of the truck bed and made a loud screeching noise and pretended he was playing guitar. In a terrible approximation of a hair metal vocalist, he sang, Dawes freely! The only man to answer our call this morning. Jesus. Fucking Christ, Bookie. Marlowe said, fishing through a Marlboro Red soft pack. He eventually just shook it out on the worn and gouged floorboards of the moving truck, along with a scattering of loose tobacco. He blew the ladder out onto the dusty, cobbled brick lot of the massive driveway. Do you ever, I mean really, ever, Shut the fuck up, man. He said all this with a laugh, producing a book of matches and flicking one aflame with his thumbnail. It was probably the only reason he even carried matches in the first place. The man exuded a sort of practiced cool that was oddly common amongst blue-collar workers up here in Portland, as though working at a moving company was a stop on the way somewhere else. Marlowe was lithe and athletically built, with dark skin and a movie star's rumbling voice. He seemed like a good fit for almost anything other than pushing old mattresses and 
flea-riddled wardrobes up into the guts of an old box truck. Bookie wasn't much different, though his looks were nothing to brag about. The light orange Miracle 75 moving t-shirt he wore fit tightly over a chest that had stayed birdie, even after five years as a grunt in this line of work. He had an unruly mop of dirty blonde hair that somehow looked perpetually filthy, as though he just ran a hand of Vaseline into it. It stuck out at random angles and fell down around the old 50s-style Coke bottle glasses he'd worn since high school and refused to replace. Dawes himself had short-cropped, almost whitely blonde hair and faded blue eyes that proved a fair match to the denim jacket he'd worn to work that day. He had the ropey muscularity one picked up working dive bars and clean-up crews and every other sort of physical labor job a guy could get wandering up the West Coast from California. He smiled, showing a front tooth chipped crossways from a bar fight gone wrong in his late twenties. Bucky dragged him into a back-slapping hug. Where the hell have you been? he asked. It's been like a year since you picked up hours with good old Miracle 75. Bucky pulled open Dawes' jacket and feigned a shocked expression when he saw the plain white muscle shirt underneath. And look at this, Marlowe, out of uniform. Dawes laughed and pushed him away, pulling a pack of cigarettes free of his jacket and lighting one. Lost most of my clothes about a year ago, he said, grinning around the cigarette. He inhaled and puffed out a big cloud of smoke that hung in the chill autumn air, with the cigarette stain clamped between his teeth. The girl I was with then got sick of me and threw my stuff out on the lawn. We were living in Old Town, and, wouldn't you know it, none of it was there when I finally got back. Marlowe laughed. Seriously, I saw a doper like three days later wearing my Doc Martens. He did you a favor, Marlowe said with a chuckle. I remember those boots. I, I like those boots, Dawes laughed. I was stuck in my no-slips from this restaurant job for like two weeks until I could afford something new. Sounds like you had it coming, Bookie said. What'd you do? I told my side girl I was leaving my girlfriend to be with her, you know. Just couldn't live without her, Dawes said. Turns out I'd forgotten which one I was talking to and uh, basically confessed to my girl I was running out on her. All three of the men laughed and Bookie shook his head. You're full of shit, Dawes, he said. But that's why I like you. I aim to please. Hey, you layabouts called a voice from up the driveway. Dawes shielded his eyes with his hand and found Demarcus Winters bounding down the winding stairway to the drive. The man was a clean hundred pounds overweight, but at seven feet tall, that didn't amount to much more than a pot belly. A cauldron belly, more like, Bookie had once said, striving as ever to show off the advanced vocabulary that had netted him this cushy, moving job. It was DeMarcus who'd given Graham McAuliffe the nickname Bookie five years ago when he tried to sound smart by naming the plots of all the titles on a bookshelf they were tasked with moving. Bookie enjoyed the name. Bookie enjoyed the nickname immensely. It was a story, he liked to say, he would one day tell when he was a famous author. He'd threatened Dawes and Marlowe and the other men at the company with one day quitting Miracle 75 to write the great American novel, but so far hadn't. Well, shit, Dawes did show up, DeMarcus said. 
He trundled over to Dawes and shook his hand, pulling him in for a hug the way a wrecking ball might pull down a building. Dawes let out a puff of air when the big man slapped him on the back. Oh, look at this. You do some time, little man? Don't appreciate prison tattoos on my crew. He pointed at the feather tattoo on the back of Dawes' wrist. Dawes turned his hand over to look at the ink. It had already faded some in the last year. This? Dawes asked, laughing. Just a bad decision I made. My record's clean as a whistle, big man, you know that. Clean as a whistle, then. All right, all right, DeMarcus said. He turned to the others. Okay, boys, take a knee. I'm going to get right down to it because we got a whole shitload of work today. Dawes and the others reluctantly took a knee. DeMarcus wouldn't start talking until they did, a holdover from his days as a lineman for the Seattle Seahawks. His career had been cut short by a host of injuries he'd sustained in a plane crash in 1975. Surviving that had been the miracle that let him start this moving company. A tall, thin man with mushroomy skin stepped up just a few feet behind DeMarcus. Dawes was startled to realize he'd been standing there the entire time, hands clasped demurely at his waist. He wore a simple black suit with a pale purple tie and a white shirt. Odd metal cufflinks glittered at his wrists, a stylized sort of eye or setting sun in gold and black. Expensive, to say the least. Grit in the driveway dug into Dawes' knee and he shifted uncomfortably. The movement drew the thin man's eye, which crawled over Dawes and then the other movers. The man's irises were a stunning, almost fake-looking mix of purple and gold, though maybe it was a trick of the sun shining on them. His face was drawn and pale, stubbled lightly around his chin and cheeks. The mustache over his lips seemed a touch overgrown, as though it were normally trimmed thin, and his eyes were puffy like he was about to fall out from exhaustion. This is Shelby Goldstein, Esquire, of Walther Dunbarton and Loeb, DeMarcus said, giving everybody a stern look like they were about to take the field in the biggest game of their life. His client, a Miss Hiroshiko Ami, passed just last week and her next of kin are relocating her old possessions for the estate sale. There is a lot of stuff inside this house, boys, and we gonna move it all. DeMarcus couldn't help but sneak the company's slogan into any conversation it might even half fit inside. Now, Mr. Goldstein has labeled Miss Ami's possessions. Mrs. Hiroshiko, Goldstein interrupted. The man's voice was cloying and silky, the soft voice of suggestions and deals made behind closed doors. DeMarcus gave him a confused look, not so much that he didn't understand why he'd been interrupted, rather that he could be interrupted. Goldstein explained anyway. Mrs. Hiroshiko is a dual citizen of Japan and the United States. It spent her life in America doing her best to live up to the proud heritage of her ancestors. As such, her name is given surname first. He paused and looked over the movers, favoring them with a thin smile. Additionally, she was married in 1935. Thus, Mrs. Hiroshiko. Okay, DeMarcus said, turning back to his men. Mrs. Hiroshiko has a lot of expensive things being moved with priority to places all over the city for storage and auction. We're going to treat every item like it was our own baby, understand? 
And Mr. Goldstein has been kind enough to label items with colored stickers so we know which ones go first. Roy G. Biv, in that order. Just like the rainbow. Any questions? Bucky raised his hand. No? Good, DeMarcus said, turning to Goldstein. Bucky sighed and dropped his hand, standing with the others. Dawes got a better look at the house as they climbed the steep drive and then the seemingly steeper staircase leading to the front door. Sweeping castellations soared over the brocade of old-growth trees. Over his shoulder, to the east, Mount Hood sat behind a thin blue veil of ozone. Portland lay somewhere between him and that great mountain, in a valley obscured by the thick tree cover to the southeast. Mount St. Helens lay to the northeast, also obscured, though he could still see the tracework of smoke guttering from its mouth into the sky. It had been five years since the eruption and curious geologists from across the globe were still visiting in droves to figure out why the thing was still sputtering long after it should have gone dormant. People in town, normally a sunnied bunch despite the rain, had started talking about Mount Hood getting hot like Helen, and hushed voices. How the fuck are we supposed to carry shit up and down this fucking thing? Bookie grumbled. The stairs under their feet were surprisingly economical compared to the grandness of the house hanging over them. They were simple, molded concrete, and not very wide, snaking uphill at nearly 45 degrees. A black-painted steel pipe handrail ran most of the length of the stairs, disappearing in places where time had rusted away the brackets holding it in place. Beside the stairs grew a forest of shin-high weeds and uncut grass. He couldn't see any bugs dancing amongst those blades, but he could hear them singing all around. Steady buzzsaw humming of deep summer, despite it being November. It's temporary, DeMarcus said. This is just a, like, fact-finding tour for y'all, so you can see what needs going where before we start. Hideo, who got here early, unlike you layabouts, is already inside organizing stuff. There's a lot of stuff in there. Dawes felt the hitch when DeMarcus kept himself from saying shit and chuckled. It's hard to get to the garage where we'll be backing up into to take the rest of the loads. So we're going to take some of the larger items down this here staircase. Marlowe sighed and Bucky cursed under his breath. Dawes looked down the landing behind them. A few two-man carries down that slope would be most of the day's effort expended. The thought vanished from his mind when he saw the house. Holy shit, Marlowe said. How the fuck they get this all the way up here? The front of the building soared into the sky. It made Dawes feel small and unimportant, the way national monuments sometimes did. This place had power, a purpose. It was built by important people for important reasons, and he was just an ant that had to crawl up through the cracks. He couldn't quite place the style. It screamed old European in his mind, though what part of Europe he couldn't decide. A colonnaded portico led into the entrance closest to them, away from which sprawled stonework cut in mad spirals and fractal patterns that somehow formed themselves into the square facade of a Tudor castle. But around and over that flew buttresses and an assortment of different towers, tubes and drums and bulbous Russian minarets, 
They seemed colored a multitude of browns, grays, and whites. But on closer inspection, Dawes saw the entire building seemed to be made out of the exact same brown stone. The appearance of different colors was caused by a trick of the patterns carved into the surface. This thing is fucking full to the brim, boys, DeMarcus said in a low voice as Goldstein stepped away from them to unlock the door. I'm not going to say what we're getting paid to do this, but it's a daily rate, and it's high. And between you boys and me, it's going to take us months to empty this place. Maybe a year. Are pay getting upped on that? Marlow asked. Yes, sir, DeMarcus said. His and everybody else's eyes wandered the face of the mansion, the castle, before them. Dawes particularly looked from window to window. All of them were flat, singular panels of glass save for a massive rose window of purple and red that glowed like an eye in the center of the building. He expected it would hang over the main hall. Probably looks amazing when the sun's rising, he thought. Something caught his eye, a touch of movement in a high window that tickled a primal part of his mind. Eyes, it said, and face. But when he focused on that spot, there was nothing more than the watery glitter of the warped old glass and the noonday sun. The wind, which never stopped this high in the mountains, picked up in blue leaves and shreds of grass and sticks across the wide marble patio. Some of this debris caught in the errant fronds of weeds growing between the slabs. Bookie cleared his throat and spoke. Lo, did the gates of heaven rise before me he quoted in a purposefully eerie voice. And I saw the mad black scrawl upon their faces, and I heard in their squealing hinges the voices of the betrayed, and I felt on their bars the chill of ages, and I saw in the great expanse beyond nothing beyond nothing, the empty promise, the last lie of God. Marlowe slapped him in the back of the head. Quoting fucking common leads? He snapped. Creepy motherfucker. How many times your mama dropped you? Bucky laughed. So many, he said, running a hand through his crazy hair. And come on, look at this place. How could you not quote common leads? He waved a hand at the building, then snapped a finger and turned to Marlowe. And how do you know common leads? Please, Marlowe said. You can't watch a horror movie these days without somebody quoting that weak shit and raising the dead or bringing back Charles Manson's ghost. It's always those same five fucking lines, too. Gates of heaven, my ass. Dawes hadn't appreciated the recitation much either, but he didn't say so. Welcome to the Hiroshiko residence, gentlemen, Goldstein said, pushing the massive double doors open wide and then gesturing for them to step inside. This place is fucking haunted, Bookie said, looking up at the ceiling. Between the rose window and the dozens of recessed skylights, the place was fairly well lit. The impression Dawes got was that they'd just walked inside a thicker part of the woods around the property. Wind blowing from the depths of the house brought a musty, almost hot-smelling odor into the hall. It died and rose over and over. It made Dawes feel like he was in the mouth of some huge thing, feeling it breathe. You believe in ghosts, Mr. McAuliffe, 
Goldstein said, turning and raising an appraising eye at the movers. Dawes thought again of having stepped into the woods, as Goldstein stepped closer to them, the patchwork shadows left by the skylights dancing up and over his face. His eyes glittered and dulled, an almost calming sort of strobe, like a mouse might see in the face of a snake. No, Bucky said, still looking around the ceiling. But I like ghost stories. I bet this place has a few. He snapped out of his reverie and looked at Goldstein. Hey, how do you know my name? I told him, DeMarcus said. The movers looked at their boss and he shrugged. Had to run a background check on the firm, isn't that what you said? Yes, Goldstein replied. There are valuables here of extreme worth. We can't entrust just anybody with this job. He gave Dawes a long look. You, though, I believe you're Mr. Freely. Goldstein touched his fingertips together, his hands resting in a V below his belt. Yeah, Dawes said, facing the man and crossing his arms. Mr. Winters added you at the last minute, Goldstein said, giving DeMarcus a glance. You don't mind us snooping around in your past. He smiled in a way the situation didn't call for. Dawes looked at his own feet and then smiled, raising his eyes back to the glittering black orbs in the twilight. Go for it, he said. I'd be interested to see what you find. He cleared his throat and looked around the massive, empty hall. If anything. Yes, Goldstein said. Anyway, if you'll follow me, there's little time to waste. What followed was a tour of the first floor of the North Wing. Dawes had never been inside a home like this in his life. Any building, really. The hall leading through the heart of the wing was tiled in ornate black and white checks. The walls along the hall and in much of the rooms were paneled mahogany, all carved in the same style as the facade of the house. Dawes found his fingers tracing the odd curves more than once. The pattern beneath his fingertips felt almost like code. The hallways grew more cluttered the further they got from the main hall. Stacks of boxes, old crates even, were piled up near to the ceiling in places. Amongst all of these were odd bits of furniture, ornate bookshelves, spinning globes with the names of continents and countries all in Arabic script, couches stacked on top of other couches, and all draped with yellowed drop cloth. Cobwebs grew thick in the spaces between everything. They seemed to Dawes like a sort of ethereal gray mist, a material shadow of some strange thing that had fallen from the walls to rest over all this forgotten history, like a shroud. He ran a hand through a net of the stuff and found it surprisingly tough. It clumped over his hand and he had to shake himself free. The great, shadowy network of web puckered and pitched and stretched out into the depths of the hallways beyond where he could see. In the depths of the building, they heard something thump. Oh dear, Goldstein said. Dawes saw him touch a slender hand to his face at the front of their little pack. I hope that wasn't another collapse in the basement. This place has a basement too? Marlowe said. He was walking with his head much lower than it needed to be, slapping at the cobwebs every time one stuck to his hair. Despite his best efforts, 
the tight black curls were steadily turning gray. Two basements, in fact, Goldstein replied, flicking his fingers through the air. One beneath either wing. The South Wing's basement suffered a terrible collapse during the Mount St. Helens explosion, I'm afraid. I've been told we lost something like 10,000 bottles of wine in that incident. Most of that area is wine storage. There were a few dozen barrels of bourbon lost, too, some of them more than a hundred years old. Maybe a few of them are still around, Bookie muttered, looking back over his shoulder toward the south wing. He caught Dawes looking and winked. I wouldn't try to find out, if I were you, Mr. McAuliffe, Goldstein said. That entire side of the mansion is terribly unstable now, and completely off-limits. The party passed a heavy wooden door with iron banding set into a flourished archway, and Goldstein pointed. A strip of red plastic was fastened over the front of the door with neat strips of duct tape. Just as with any area where you see this red marking. Goldstein stopped walking in front of a door filled with soft blue light. Dawes hadn't really even realized how dark it had gotten this deep in the halls. Without the lady of the house around, he figured, there was no reason to keep paying the electric bill. Oh, hey, idiot! Bucky shouted. His voice was loud enough to make Marlowe duck. The man was an easy startle. Dawes looked past Bucky into the room where Hideo, the last member of the crew, was organizing old crates full of irregularly colored glasses. He gave a sharp wave and went back to work. Nice of you to show up, Book, he said, pulling a red sticker off a roll and mushing it into place with his thumb. It didn't want to stick to the old wood, and Hideo eventually got sick of dicking with the thing and jammed the sticker between the slats on the side of the crate. He held his hands up to the sky, looking at nobody. And now this room is done. I'm taking my lunch break. Log your minutes, DeMarcus said. Log your fucking dick, Hideo murmured, storming past them into the dark hallway. He was wearing the high-visibility vest they were all supposed to wear on job sites. And Dawes could see it bobbing in the darkness long after Hideo's outline had faded. There was a loud thump, and the vest disappeared. Take fuck nugget! Hideo shouted. His voice was softened by the distance. Dawes saw the orange glow rise up out of the dark and laughed. Be careful down there, Hideo! Dawes yelled after him. Suck a fart out of my ass, you fucking blister! Hideo shouted back. Then the vest really was gone. Dawes looked that way a second longer. The hallway's curve, he thought. That's why it's so fucking dark in here. Your employee has quite a mouth on him. Goldstein said to DeMarcus, voice sharp with displeasure. DeMarcus shrugged. If I could do something about it, I already would have. He replied. Goldstein liked to slip in and out of the house's deep shadows as they worked. He gave long, irritating lectures about being careful and constant, stern reminders of how fragile and expensive and important every last bauble was to the estate. Dawes had heard the same shit a million times as a mover, though in his experience it was only rich cunts that ever stretched the speeches out that long. 
Middle-class people would try to be cool most of the move, until you touched the one thing they cared about. Then they broke out into a sweat until it was bundled and buried in the van. Poor people cared more than the rich people about every last thing, though that was usually because they didn't have all that much. If you broke the table, they were out of table fucking indefinitely, or they'd just have to make do using a fucked-up, broken-ass table. Put phone books under the legs. Embarrass the kids' friends. Dawes remembered one middle-aged black lady, the wife of a naval petty officer overseeing a move from just south of Portland down to Corpus Christi. He'd risked a tricky move with a chest of drawers and she'd just cleared her throat. No, you ain't, she said, shifting the child on her hip and staring at him. Dawes chuckled at the memory. What the fuck are you laughing about? Hideo said. It was the third day of work now, and they were getting used to the job. Given the obnoxious route they had to take to get out of the house, they'd been slowed to just one room per day. They'd cleared the hallway first, and those cobwebs had given them a monster of a time. So had Goldstein, slipping in and out of sight to point and worry over every last thing. But eventually they'd cleared the hall. It had taken something like three truckloads to finish it, the rough equivalent of an entire single-family home. Dawes had ridden along on a few of the offload trips, which were thankfully handled by a separate crew at the storage warehouse everything seemed to be going to. They all wore gray jumpsuits with grady shipping emblazoned on the back. Hey, man, Dawes asked one of them. Where is all this going? The guy just shrugged and kicked out the bottom of the dolly, dragging a stack of book-laden crates into the airline hangar-sized doors. This is a fucking kitchen, Hideo said, leaning into what they found out seconds later was a heavy, six-foot-wide, claw-footed bookshelf. It could have been used for anything. The shelves themselves were inch-thick slabs of stained oak, all of them at least two feet deep. They could have held stacks of gold without bending. As such, they just held books. So, Dawes figured, they were bookshelves. Are you sure? Dawes said. He dialed up the Coleman gas lanterns DeMarcus had bought them in a bid to better navigate the house. The deeper they got into the north wing, the darker the rooms got. Windows in any given room would be filled with stacks of old books, newspapers with Chinese characters. One room even had plastic-wrapped wholesale boxes of Pez candy pellets and dispensers packed so tightly into a window frame they had to use a pry bar to loosen them. Fucking why? Hideo had said, face streaming with sweat. The work wasn't that exhausting. The house just got hotter the deeper they walked into it. It wasn't the dry heat of a furnace or radiator, but a raw, wet sort of hotness, like being stuck in a greenhouse a few minutes after the sprinklers have stopped running. It stuck to you, in a way, and the odd, breathy blowing up the corridors never seemed to stop. Look, right there. Hideo said, back in the maybe kitchen. Dawes followed his finger until he saw it too. It's a stovetop under all that. What are those, bindles of silk or something? Dawes could see it. The black tracework of burner covers and corners of polished steel poking out here and there beneath maybe 80 neatly stacked rolls of expensive-looking fabric. The kind you might see in a Middle Eastern bazaar. Two hours of digging, 
Goldstein materialized in that time and passed out the stickers, naming what needed to go where and how to color code it, revealed a fully set-up kitchen, complete with stainless steel prep tables, two stoves, a flat iron range, and a nest of drawers filled with boxes of industrial kitchen knives. The entire thing had been set up like people were about to come in and pull a full day shift in a four-star restaurant. The only thing missing was gas hookups, the parts for which Dawes found in an oily box under the prep table. He couldn't wait to announce the ridiculous find to Hideo. Dawes had been passing the time every day by getting the man riled up so we could hear him complain about every little thing. But Hideo was quiet now, standing with arms crossed and looking down at the table. Hey, what's up, man? Dawes asked, heading over to see what he was looking at. He had to bat away more than a few dangling sheets of web that were only just low enough for someone his height to have to deal with. Hideo was a good four inches shorter than him and walked under most of the stuff without ever noticing it. Hideo unfolded one of his arms and pointed at the table. Check this out, he said. There was a sticker on the corner of the table, one of the kind they'd been putting on everything. A fine layer of dust lay over the tiny violet disc. Dawes realized the sticker was old, ancient even. Even back here in the dark, the color had faded some, and the corners were starting to peel up of their own accord. He put a finger on it and pushed. The glue, decayed from years of sticking to the stainless steel, gave way, leaving a grimy smear on the silvery metal. Lady Hiroshiko has always been one for extensive organization, Goldstein said just over Dawes' shoulder. Dawes jumped. Oh, fuck! Hideo shouted, turning to Goldstein. What the fuck, man? You're just sneaking up on people? God! Damn it! He put his knuckle in his mouth and turned around to pace. My apologies, Goldstein said with a smile. He pointed to the sticker. She liked her systems. A methodical woman. Repetitive. Dedicated. He put his pale forefinger on the sticker and slid it off the edge of the table. He held the tiny piece of paper up in front of his nose and then crumpled it and dropped it in his pocket. That would have been the wrong color anyway. This item should be coded blue. Sure, boss, Dawes said. No problem. They had been repeating the color scheme every couple of days. Roy G. Biv. The guys at the storage hangar hadn't seemed to pay the color scheme much attention, and Dawes couldn't see a pattern to it. If anything, the rationale behind it was risky, sometimes outright dangerous from a moving perspective. Heavy things went on the truck in the wrong order. Fragile items were put in compromising situations. It didn't make a lick of sense, but any deviation would summon Goldstein like a vengeful, irritating spirit. He favored the movers with one of his smiles and then left the room. Dawes watched him fade into the darkness in the hall. Watching for the exact moment, he disappeared. Hey there, Westsiders. I hope you're enjoying another free, independently produced episode of The Westside Fairy Tales. While the West Side Fairy Tales will always remain free and available to the public, there are some things you can do to support the podcast and keep great horror fiction independent. 
If you have a moment, consider buying a bit of merch from the Westside Fairy Tales merch store at westsidefairytales.com slash merch. Get yourself a t-shirt, a hoodie, or even a mug bearing our logo and show the world just how much you love hanging out on the West Side once a month. If you hate hearing me talk in the middle of the episodes or ads in general, consider paying just a dollar a month at patreon.com slash westsidefairytales for early release, advertisement-free episodes of the regular story episodes, and the West Side Fairy Tales Horror and Lit Club episodes. For five bucks, you also get PDFs of the monthly stories laid out just like a real novel, and access to the Behind the Story episodes, where I go in detail about the method behind creating the month's story and any inspirations I have. You get even more content and free merchandise at the higher levels, so please consider supporting the West Side Fairy Tales today. Now, back to our story. They cleared the first floor. No matter how much furniture they removed, however, the cobwebs never seemed to abet. If anything, they accumulated more freely, sometimes collapsing into makeshift screens in the hallway. They broke apart with the first touch, but they'd cling to Dawes for hours, sometimes until he finally scrubbed them away in the shower after work. They worked on the second floor now which had all the problems of the first floor, compounded by a broad spiral staircase that led from level to level. The pro to this was that the staircase, located behind the massive iron-belted wooden door in the hall, was near the smoking lounge where they'd found the makeshift kitchen. That room, for whatever reason, bordered the house's garage. Garage really wasn't the correct word, either. Carriage house is what came to mind when Dawes stepped inside the place. It was packed as full as the rest of the house. There was even a dry-rotted saddle buried beneath a stack of newspapers from West Virginia, of all places. The Charleston Independent Star. Some of them were absurdly old and simply read the Charleston Independent across the masthead. Once clear, they'd backed the old Miracle 75 box truck right up to the massive double doors. Those swung open on fat-barreled black hinges coated in a thick, gray-black grease. The doors were so heavy they needed the support of stubby iron wheels, which ran along rusted steel guide tracks recessed into the cobbles. The doors were wide and high enough to accommodate the back of the truck, which made loading a breeze compared to the winding staircase in front of the house. The only bad thing about this new arrangement was the staircase inside the house they now had to contend with. It wasn't steep or cramped, but the stairs themselves were trapezoidal, thinning as they got close to the pin of the screw-shaped staircase. Backing down the things while carrying anything that blocked your view of your feet was a complete fucking nightmare. And many of the larger objects, six king-size redwood bed frames without mattresses, for instance, had to be carried just so or they'd catch on the wall, or the pin. What Dawes hated most was the passage to the lower floor, though he hadn't shared that with the other guys. The spiral staircase went up and down, down to the basement, according to Goldstein. The breathy heat in the place seemed to come from down there, and the sticky, sweaty feeling was at its worst near that descending staircase. The red tape that had formerly blocked the door now hung there at the head of the stairs, 
affixed again by neat strips of tape. This place is creepy as hell, Marlowe said, shifting his footing to get a better grip on the iron table they were carrying. The thing was only three feet tall and weighed at least 150 pounds. It was ugly, blocky, and made totally out of metal. It looked like something that would get dropped on a cartoon cat's head. Marlowe set it on the steps and sat down himself, wiping his forehead. I gotta tell you something, man, he said. His face was calm, but his eyes were worried. Puffy bags lay underneath them. I think I'm going to take my payout early on this one and go. Yeah? Yeah, Marlowe said. He shook his head. This stuff is weird. That fucking Goldstein is weird. Dawes looked up the staircase, sure the guy would appear behind Marlowe like a boogeyman. He noticed Marlowe doing the same, only downstairs. I've been having dreams, man. Like, every night. I'm stuck in this place, and I don't have a lantern. It's hot. There's a woman just ahead of me in the dark light, so I can only barely see her. He swallowed. Dawes said nothing. The moment felt crisp. Somehow breakable. I feel like I'm running after that, only I'm just standing there, looking at her. He continued. But I'm also running at the same time, and Gotta focus on that, on running, or I'll just be in the hallway, and she's getting closer, in the hallway, and while I'm running, he shook his head. Man, I'm sorry for telling you all this. Nah, get it off your chest, dude, Dawes said. The breathy wind blew around them. Marlowe chuckled, an uncomfortable noise, and nodded without looking at Dawes. Well he said, tapping his thumb on his blue jeans. Well, I run until I get to these fucking stairs, and there's this purplish light bobbing away down the steps ahead of me. I figure it's somebody. Anybody. At least it isn't dark where the light is. He paused on a thought, clearly wanting to say more, but deciding against it. Anyway, he said, I'm not the kind of guy that has dreams like that. Especially not every goddamn night. It's probably just nerves or something. I don't know. I'm getting old. Anyway, I'm going to talk to DeMarcus when we finish moving this thing. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. They finished lugging the uncomfortable hunk of iron out to the truck, and Dawes rode up the lift with it alone. Marlowe gave him a half-smile and waved, then walked back inside the house. He seemed relieved, excited, almost. DeMarcus caught up with Dawes later, while he was helping Bookie maneuver an old baby crib with moving steel sides down the stairs. The retention pegs on the heavy sidings kept loosing themselves as the men walked, dropping the metal crossbars and nearly snapping all their fingers off at the second knuckle. Hey, DeMarcus said. You seen Marlowe? I told him to stick around to the end of the day at least. It's a fucking two-mile walk down this mountain, and I'm his ride. He give you notice? Dawes asked. Demarcus nodded, looking sad. 
Marlowe quit, huh? Bucky said. It wasn't surprise so much as the question of a possibility. Almost like Bucky was saying, maybe I could too. Yeah, DeMarcus said. Said this place gave him the creeps and he wanted to be gone. He looked at the walls with their mad, interlacing scroll work. Can't really say I blame him. But damn, he left me in a lurch. Bucky and Dawes said nothing. A moment passed and DeMarcus wandered back up the stairs to see whatever Hideo was doing. Bucky and Dawes got the thing downstairs and into the hallway, where they set it down to let their hands rest. Bucky rested on the side of the crib, looking down at the stained, striped mattress attached to the bed springs by cloth tie-ups. He saw something in that thin, pitiful sleeping pad that made him shake and bow his head. Dawes turned back to the stairs and his breath caught in his chest. There was really nothing wrong. It was just that the tape holding the red band blocking the basement stairs had come loose. The strip of thin red plastic was fluttering over the stairs, tangled in a wad of errant, fallen cobwebs. Dawes picked the strip up and pressed the tape against the wall hard, holding it there a while before stepping back and making sure it stayed in place. He made an effort not to look down into the shadows of the winding basement staircase, and succeeded, to a degree. Dawes had his own dream that night. Portland, the valley around it, and all the mountains beyond were bare and dead. He was standing naked on the concrete dais in front of the house, watching Mount Hood erupt. The exploding caldera had ripped the mountain in two. The very air was on fire. Poisonous. A black thing pushed its hand out of the molten flames. The uppermost tip of its misshapen head, larger even than the mountain, crowned, knocking loose slabs of stone larger than city blocks. Dawes caught a glimpse of a single, great, purple eyeball. Then the thing cracked open its mouth and sunk back inside the mountain. All the land heaved and shuddered and buckled and fell into that maw. Fell into a nothing more absolute than the word of God. Dawes snapped awake. The feather tattoo on the back of his wrist itched terribly. Worse even than it had in the first few weeks after he'd gotten it. He'd scratched the skin around it raw. Somebody was talking to him. Dude, seriously, Bookie said, kicking the bottom of his foot again. We thought you'd quit. How long have you been sleeping here? Dawes yawned and looked around. This room was filled with a vapory light that fell through the tall, ornate windows filling its oblong western wall. It was a hidden sort of third floor they'd been made to clear out. A lonely room with almost nothing in it. The windows, five of them, were all emblazoned with fractal scrollwork that occasionally formed into shapes. But in the center of each window was a symbol on its own, cordoned off from the scrollwork by a meridian of untouched blue glass. There was a hand-shaped symbol on the leftmost window. A hand of sticks, he thought. The words came to him like they'd been spoken into his head. The same happened with the other symbols. The next window over, second from the middle on the left, bore a crescent moon and stars. 
a starred crescent, the voice in his mind said. At the far right, a stylized sort of eye or setting sun. He remembered it from Goldstein's metal cufflinks. A blind horizon, he thought. To the left of that, the least complex symbol, a circle with three bisecting lines at each third. Of all of them, it seemed the most like the patterned scrollwork. A lined circle, he thought. The centermost window, larger than the others so that its borders touched the floor and ceiling, held the most uniform symbol, a black disc separated by three lines running through its center. The top and bottom lines curved upward and downward slightly at the ends, respectively. A divided sun, he thought. Dude, what the fuck? Bookie said. His eyes were bagged out, too, and almost purple from exhaustion. Are you stoned? He chuckled, which seemed like it took some effort on his part. Hey, can I, can I get some? No, I'm just... Beat, man, Dawes said. The chair he'd fallen asleep in was an ornate, heavy thing made of some dark wood he couldn't place. Ebony or something like it. The cushion was ancient and weird-smelling, but thick as a twin-sized mattress and about ten times more comfortable. What time is it? About quitting time, Bucky said. He looked around the odd, empty room and grumbled to himself. Maybe for fucking ever. You thinking about bailing on this job too? Yeah, man, he replied. Or at least juicing DeMarcus for double what I'm being paid. He sniffed. Now, actually, fuck that. I think Marlowe had the right idea. He sighed. This is like the only room in this place that has some fucking light coming into it, you know? I'm sick of how dark it is and these fucking cobwebs. He waved a hand around, but there were none in this room. Bookie seemed to notice this and slowly lowered his arm. What is the fucking deal with this house, dude? I don't know, Dawes said, itching his tattoo again. But I know I'll be glad to be fucking quit of this place. Quit of this place, Bookie parroted. Look at you. Dawes rolled his eyes, stood, and stretched. Fuck off, Bookie, he said. You're not the only cunt with a library card. Bookie laughed and Dawes grabbed a side of the big chair. Now help me carry this cumbersome piece of shit downstairs before DeMarcus docks my pay. The garage was empty. Dawes set the chair down and looked at Bookie. Did we send out a load? He asked. Thought the truck was only like half full. Bookie just shrugged and dropped down into the chair. A whiff of something hot. A brief chemical reek tinged the air. Dawes rubbed his eyes. Jeez, no wonder you fell asleep in this thing, he said, crossing his legs and putting his hands behind his head. You just let me know if you see DeMarcus coming. Dawes flicked him behind the ear and Bookie started up, rubbing the side of his head. He gave Dawes an ugly look. Dude, he said, what the fuck? You don't have a weird feeling right now? Dawes asked. Bookie said nothing, which was all he had to say. He cast his eyes to the empty spot in the garage where the truck should be. Hideo walked in the door behind them. Hey, he said. You guys seen DeMarcus? 
He paused. Where's the van? What the hell are you doing here? Dawes asked. Bookie jumped out of the chair, looking around the empty room. The chemical smell grew worse. Following you guys, Hideo said. I've been hunting you all over the fucking house, you dickhead. What? Dawes asked. We thought you and Demarcus were taking a load out to the hangar. The van's gone. He pointed and Hideo followed his finger. And what do you mean, following us around? We've been hauling this heavy fucking chair down from upstairs at, like, a foot per second. Fuck off, Hideo said. I just spent half my break following one of you dickheads around this gloomy fucking shithole. You know that's why you're all supposed to be wearing these stupid fucking things, right? He pointed to his orange high-vis vest. It couldn't have been us, Bookie said. I was wandering around upstairs like 30 minutes ago looking for this turd. He pointed at Dawes. He was sleeping in that weird room that's sort of hidden over the main hallway. Hideo gave Dawes an ugly look, and Dawes rolled his eyes. So who were you following, Demarcus? He asked. How could you not catch up with him? He moves like shit sliding down a toilet bowl. Again, Dawes, where does this come from? Bookie said, laughing. That was beautiful, man. Are you trying to show me up? Shut the fuck up, Bookie, Hideo said. Maybe it was that fucking spook Goldstein. This is the only haunted house I've ever been inside where the ghosts hire you to move them the fuck out. Wind gusted inside the carriage house, carrying a thickly chemical smell that made them all gag. It tinged the air gray. Oh, what the fuck? Bookie said, ducking down and gagging. They all figured out what the smell was at the same time, but Bookie said it first. Is something burning? None of them had heard it which was something of a miracle in and of itself, though Dawes remembered something like a rumble passing through the floor after Bookie had woken him. Outside, the column of smoke was thick and dark, with fumes from the two full 100-gallon diesel tanks that powered the Miracle 75 box truck. The rest of the conflagration was a poisonous mixture of ancient, stained wood and various plastic appliances loaded into the van. Even from 300 feet up, they could see the tangled limbs of shattered furniture burning around the impact site. Shit. Was DeMarcus in there? Hideo said. If he was, we are going to have a hard time getting paid over this job, Bookie said. Dawes looked back at the house, the only one of them to do so, and thought he saw the shape of something in one of the closest windows. A pale face with long black hair that might just have been the shape of the old curtains brushing against the glass. There's a phone inside, in the south wing, Hideo said. You've been in there? Dawes asked. I've been stealing all kind of shit from over there, Hideo said with a shrug. There's all kind of weird little gold statues and shit. Otherwise I would have quit this fucking job day one. Dude, fuck that, Bookie said. Let's just walk the fuck down the mountain. We need to call the police before the whole fucking mountain goes up. Hideo said, pointing down at the flames. They had already spread into the trees the box truck had smashed to pieces when it tumbled off the mountain. The truck itself seemed to be on the verge of going out, but everything else was crisping brown at the edges and starting to smolder. It had been a dry year. That's pretty noble of you, Bookie said. I'm fucking leaving. Good luck, guys. Wait, Dawes said. 
He couldn't exactly explain why he thought it was a bad idea to walk down the hill alone, but he tried anyway. I think you should stick with us, man. What if, what if that spreads super fast and you get caught in it? Figure this out on your own, Hideo said, walking back to the house. Dodge tried to stop him, too, but Bookie started talking. I'll take that chance, he said. And fuck, ever going back in there again. Fuck even trying to get paid on this mess. He put his fingers on his temples. What the fuck is going on right now? How long have we even been working here? I think my girlfriend broke up with me because all I've been doing is sleeping. I've been so tired and I spend most of that time flopping around and making noises. I feel like, like I've already seen this fucking fire too. Bucky looked at Dawes and Dawes found himself wordless. He didn't even know where to start. A bad chill was running laps up and down his spine. He looked back down at the rising column of smoke. He'd seen the same thing in his dreams, but much larger. Smoke choking the entire sky. In his dream, though, the smoke had shattered against the blue and split into the shapes of a billion birds on the wing. They had swooped down over the land, spreading across the country. He touched the feather tattoo on his wrist. It itched badly. Burned, almost. I'm going back inside, Dawes said. He sighed. I think you're right, but we can't leave Hideo up here alone. Bucky looked at Dawes and then at the access road leading back down the mountain. Just stick around out here and wait for us, okay? Bucky nodded without looking back at him. Dawes walked through the garage back into the house. Hideo had lit up a cigarette on the way inside. He could smell the smoke trapped in the cobwebs. The faint light of the lantern he brought with him into the house moved through the webs and the smoke. The shifting patterns made him feel like he wasn't moving in the direction his feet were taking him, and he had to focus on the shadows on the floor ahead to get his mind to understand where he was going. Those shadows suddenly grew long in front of him, stretching forward through the hall so far they touched the very end of the curving walls. Somebody was coming up behind him. Dawes turned around and yelled when he saw two glowing orange eyes bobbing through the darkness. The eyes yelled back at him, spinning back into the dark. Dawes' heart leapt in his chest, and then he caught his breath. God damn it, Bookie, he said. What the fuck? The glowing orange eyes were nothing more than the reflection of his lantern in Bookie's glasses. Bookie had his own lantern stretched out into the hall behind them. That's what had sent Dawes' shadow flying out ahead of him. Jesus, what's back there? Bookie asked. Nothing, you idiot, Dawes said. You just scared the shit out of me. Bookie stiffened and turned back around. Sorry, he said. It was too quiet out there. Too weird. He smiled, even though his heart didn't seem all the way into it. Figured I'd come in here with you, after all. Dawes opened his mouth to say something when they heard a loud thump down the hallway. The cobwebs around them shuddered and seemed all at once to pull in one direction. Dawes and Bookie both followed the odd motion with their eyes to the end of the hallway where they saw Hideo's orange high-vis vest in the darkness. The cherry of a lit cigarette glowed on the floor. Even at this distance, Dawes could make out the smoke curling upward. Hideo! Dawes called. Hey, hey man, what's up? The vest moved away, slipping quietly past the curve in the hallway. Fuck, 
Bucky agreed. Hey, idio! They moved toward the lit cigarette laying on the ground. Cigarette like that on these nice floors, he called after Hideo. It'll probably leave a stain, burning against the wood. The smoke amongst the cobwebs seemed thicker than anything such a little cigarette could produce. One of the hot breaths billowed up from the basement and everything shifted. The smoke over their heads had thickened to a mist. Still, they could see the cigarette glowing through the fuzz. Dawes picked it up and dropped it just as fast. Fuck he said. What? Bookie asked. His voice was shaking, at the edge of panic. Dawes pointed at the thing and Bookie saw. Oh, fuck. Yeah, Dawes said, now keeping his eyes strictly down the hallway. Almost all of the cigarette butt was soggy with blood. Some had gotten on Dawes' fingers and he had hurriedly wiped them on his work jacket. Hid, Hideo, you okay, man? He held the lantern up to spread the light out further, though the thickening mist pushed back the light. More blood glittered on the ground in front of them, a smattering of thick dots the size of quarters. Two of them had been smeared into foot-long streaks by something. Dawes swallowed. What the fuck? Bucky said. You look behind us, Dawes said. He heard Bucky turn around and saw the shift of shadow as the other lantern spun with him. What what do you think's back there? Bookie asked. Nothing, Dawes said. Nothing's back there. Just make sure it stays that way, yeah? Bookie mumbled an affirmative and they started walking. Bookie keeping ever in contact with Dawes, reaching back to touch his hip, his elbow, anything to keep himself from falling behind. The blood disappeared further down the hall, and for a moment Dawes held out hope that Hideo might be okay. He knew that wasn't even remotely possible when he found the puddles further down. Blood covered the wooden floor from wall to wall over a stretch of about three feet. Further out, the stuff had splattered into errant constellations, splashes caused by a heavy pour from the source, Dawes knew. Don't fall, he said to Bookie, not bothering to clarify. A second later, he heard Bookie's feet splashing through the gore and the man himself cursing softly under his breath. The mist had grown so thick it felt almost like the building was on fire. He could only see fifteen feet or so in front of his face. Hideo's orange high-vis vest bloomed in the haze ahead in an almost radioactive-looking corona. Hideo, Dawes said. He could see the man's arms and legs now, hanging straight down by his sides. His head hung down over his chest like a moping child. The sound of something dripping came from that direction. The orange glow of the vest slipped away into the mist, and Dawes heard something else, an almost inaudible clicking noise, and a brushing sound, like a hand running over rough fabric. Dawes stepped closer. The orange vest pulled rapidly away and Dawes picked up his pace. Hideo floated into the dark without moving. His legs remained still and straight as he moved deeper into the hall. Dawes took off in a run and still the vest remained out of reach. Bookie yelled, and Dawes heard his feet pounding on the floor behind him. There was a brief moment as they reached the end of the hallway, where Dawes thought he saw Hideo look back at them. What he knew happened, what he could say he definitely saw, was Hideo spinning rapidly in the square opening of the hallway. 
His arms fluttered out to his sides, and then he vanished. Most of all, Hideo's body remained steeped in shadow, but Daw's lantern lit upon his face, and in that brief second he saw something that made him stop in his tracks. He couldn't be sure, of course. It was too quick. There wasn't enough light. But still, the image of that brief slice of time remained burned against the back of his eyes, like the afterimage of a lightning strike. Hideo's face had been slashed into tatters. That was clear. But there was something else about it. He should have been able to see the man's eyes, but there were only black hollows where those would have been. The flesh, the bone even, around the sockets was scored inches deep. And his mouth. It had hung far too low. The cheeks gouged away to show the faintest glimmers of white bone where the jaw muscles had been sliced through. It looked almost like a slack-jawed grin. Hideo! Bucky shouted. The clicking noise is more obvious in the main hall. Light still shone in through the windows here, though it was sparse and none seemed to touch the high corners of the ceiling. Hideo, man, what's up? What's up, buddy? You in here? You okay? Bucky stepped past Dawes and swung his lantern in wide circles. The glow seemed to fill the mist, rather than be stopped by it. Dawes looked up and saw the faint glow of orange swooping back and forth down from the ceiling. He slapped Bucky and pointed. Bucky shut up without saying another word, transfixed as Dawes by what they were seeing. The vest floated down until Dawes reached out and it landed softly on his hand. Other than a spray of blood across the back and a long, thin cut amongst that mess, the vest was perfectly fine. Dawes looked up at the ceiling and felt something drip down onto his face. He didn't have to see it to know it would be red. Jesus, fuck! Bucky shouted, turning and running for the front door. Dawes ran after him and grabbed his collar just in time, wrenching him back so hard he heard the man's teeth chatter. Bucky nearly lost his footing just as something broad and dark skittered through the falling curtains of cobweb over the front doors. Dawes saw a series of misshapen legs silhouetted against the glow from outside, and then nothing. There was a moment of brilliance before Bucky's lantern shattered against the wall. Dawes didn't even realize he'd thrown it at first. The lantern soared through the room like a displaced star, an orb of golden light marking its passage through the mist until it burst over the stones in a sudden, sputtering eruption of flame. Some seal broke in the natural gas canister on the bottom of the lantern and ignited, belching light and curling tongues of smokeless fire across the wall. The explosion seared another image into Dawes' eyes. He was only dimly aware that he was running now, Bucky close behind him again, of a long-haired woman holding onto the wall. Her eyes were black and wide, bearing the confused and heartless expression of a predator, her mouth limp and soft and full at the bottom of her face but there was something else, a distortion beside her left eye, and the shadows beyond where the fire had reached, something he could not see. They ran headlong into the south wing of the mansion. This hallway curved as well, hooking to the left as they ran, obscuring their vision with mists and cobwebs. Dawes could hear Bucky shouting something about not leaving him behind, and questions about where they were going. He could barely hear him over the sound of his own heart, and the soundless noise of panic filling his, that sort of senseless roar that comes along with fear. 
the mind pulling in every ounce of information from the air and trying to make sense of it. All the while, his tattoo burned. Hot now, almost to the touch. It felt like a million mosquito bites all centered on the same place. He ignored it and kept his feet moving, traveling by sense and instinct. Bucky had stopped complaining, but he could still hear him behind him. He almost didn't want to look back, seeing an image in his mind of Bucky floating along in the half-lit mists, black sockets where his eyes had been clawed out, his mouth hanging open in an idiot's too-wide grin. Dawes took the stairs to the basement. They curved only once around the central pin before descending at a straight, downward angle into the earth. The mists grew so thick they blinded him, and then he was running down a set of stairs suspended by nothing in an infinite black void. Bucky was screaming for him to run faster, and so he did, taking the stairs two at a time until he was again buried in the mist. The stairs curved suddenly and violently left, and Dawes struck the wall hard with his right arm. The glass housing around the lantern shattered, spilling glass over the finely detailed carvings on the stone stairs. It stayed lit, however, and they kept moving. A few turns around the pen and they burst into an almost familiar hallway. Dawes held his lamp up and could barely see past the clutter of furniture in the hall. I know all this shit, Bucky said between breaths. It's all the stuff we moved before we moved it. There is no fucking doubt. He howled and fell to his knees, pressing the palm of his hand over his left eye. Oh fuck, it hurts so bad. I've been here before, I knew this would happen. Ugh, Dawes, help, it fucking hurts. Dawes pulled Bucky to his feet. Tears of blood seeped through the cornea around his iris. The entire sclera had gone red, and his nose was bleeding. Dawes was fine, save for the infernal burning in his wrist. He shook Bucky gently, casting the light around them. Every small move pushed air against the exposed gas catchers now, making the light frail and inconsistent. It seemed to almost buckle under the weight of his movement. The mists grew thicker. Fuck. Can you move? Dawes asked. Bucky nodded and spit a mouthful of pink froth onto the ground. Dawes threw the man's arm over his shoulders and ran for the stairs. For the briefest of seconds, he almost laughed at how lucky he was it wasn't Demarcus he was carrying. I died here like eighty times already, Bucky said in a muted, sloppy voice. Duck. Dawes did so without thinking and saw something thick and furred with needle-like black hairs whip out of the mist. It clawed the stone where Bucky's throat would have been. Something smelled faintly like burning flesh. Down was the only way they could go, and so they did, toward what Dawes thought would be the basement. The humid, breathy feeling washed over them, and for a moment the color of the walls washed away, and Dawes could see the entirety of the mansion a series of interconnecting and confounding fractal hallways and stairs and chases and runs, curving in crystal elegance through an infinitely small void. Something like a black marble he could see resting in the palm of his own hand, as he watched himself scurry through it like a weevil through the intricate vertices inside a loaf of risen bread. Then they were in the hall again, but it was hardly a hallway at all now. The walls that remained were stripped bare to the stone by weather and time. Trees and vines wove their way through the lonely skeleton exposure had left of the place. And yet still the mists lingered, and the ever-present cobwebs, 
and Dawes felt as if this corpse of a house was no less full and alive than the one he knew. This state was no diminishment, no reduction, but the well and true whole of the thing. The main hall they emerged into was almost completely bereft of man-made artifice, and yet still the tracework of the building Dawes had known remained fully intact. Trees rose where the columns had stood, and fissured rock had risen from the ground to make stairs. Even the complicated rose window over the front doors was in place, made by a complex twisting of vines and leaves through which the sun shone to cast a bizarre shadow over them as they stood. I never write any books, Bucky said. I wasted all my time. Fuck. Dawes hauled him up and nearly puked when he saw the man's face. His left eye had fully ruptured, leaving a trail of blood and scraps of eye tissue laying over his cheek. I should never have taken this job. Now all the roads end here. Somewhere in here. Bucky. Bucky, Dawes said, but the man said nothing. He grew steadily heavier as the strength left him and Dawes had to lay him on the carpet of dead leaves covering the uneven stone floor. His breathing softened, then faded altogether. Dawes looked at him and then around the great hall. His eyes stopped on the far staircase. What the fuck? He whispered. Goldstein lay on the stones there, draped almost, like a towel left to dry. His black eyes were empty and unfocused, but he looked no less alive than he ever did. He jumped when the body twitched, and then watched as it flexed itself into a sitting position and looked at him. Cobwebs trailed from the shoulders and neck to join the greater network along the walls. Hello, Dawson, he said. Dawes looked around at the room. I don't go by that anymore, he replied, looking down at the lantern. One of the gas catchers had been damaged and was barely glowing. The other seemed like it wanted to give up too. A single shard of glass remained in the housing, which Dawes pulled free. He had to hold it at a weird angle to keep from cutting his hand. What are you going to do with that? Goldstein asked, an amused smile cutting across his face. It's not much, if you're planning to fight for your life. I know, Dawes said. But I've had less before. He stepped onto Goldstein's chest, which didn't move an inch under his foot. It seemed, in fact, that he was stepping on little more than clothing in some sort of rudimentary skeleton. A wooden cage somebody had draped cloth over. We looked into you, Goldstein said as Dawes gathered up a handful of webbing. This was wider, thicker, and coarser than the stuff dangling from the ceilings. He started cutting into it. You fell in with the Corsicans after they broke that door in the Nevada desert, correct? They didn't give you much of a choice whether to join after that, did they? One of the cords snapped and Goldstein's head fell slack against the stones. He kept talking all the same. How about that? Dawes said, watching the severed web shrivel. And no, they didn't. He kept at the cords, but Goldstein didn't seem to mind. Why don't you jump in with us? Goldstein asked. The conscription of Walther and Dunbarton would be glad to have you. Even Blackwell might make you an offer. You could do very well with a mentorship like that. Pass, Dawes said, almost through the last fibers. Goldstein's mouth and face had stopped moving now, but the voice still boiled up from somewhere in his chest. Your loss, he said. 
Then something hit Dawes like a ton of bricks, tossing him against the wall. The lantern housing split and a gout of flame spit from its new throat onto the old trees beside the landing. The bark caught easily. The thing standing over Dawes, poised to strike, reared back and covered its face. It skittered back on a mismatched set of six legs and he finally got a good look at it. To Dawes it looked like a four-legged spider had tried to force itself into an undersized woman's suit and split the fabric in several places. The woman, a naked East Asian lady, gazed at Dawes with hungry, stupid eyes. Her mouth hung slightly open, in an almost pout, but split hideously at the left corner where the spider's wriggling mouth parts emerged. A single black fang protruded from her cheekbone. Tora Tora, you fucking bitch, Dawes said, barely able to speak. The thing had easily broken a couple of his ribs with that first hit. He could taste blood in his mouth as well. The woman part of the thing had eyes only for him, but the spider's face kept nervously turning the shared neck to the fire, quickly spreading into the cobwebs. She had been incredibly beautiful once, and that was apparent even now. Her face was rounded and pale, looking almost carved from soft white stone. What remained of her body was still eye-catching, too though the limbs on her right side were jutted out at nightmarishly painful angles to accommodate the spider thing. She charged, closing the distance in a second, urging her other half around the fire, and barreling fangs first into Dawes. He took the hit readily, jamming the shard of glass into the human half's neck so hard it shattered, cutting him badly as well. The other hand he buried in the spider's mouth on instinct fully expecting it to be snatched off at the elbow with one nasty bite. Instead, it burst into fire. Neon green flame burst from the spider's shared gullet, washing up Dahl's arm and singeing the flesh of his shoulder. The woman's side frantically struggled with the glass in her throat. A blackish ichor bubbled out of her mouth and her normally stupid eyes were now turned in worry. The entire body of the thing reared back dragging Dawes down the stairs at an angle so quickly he heard several loud pops and the bones in his arm. The pain from the fire was so intense he barely noticed. A second later, an ocean of endorphins washed over him, pushing his consciousness all the way back to the rear of his brain. He was only dimly aware of the electrical green flame burning his right arm to cinders. Instead, he noticed the ghosts of dozens, Hundreds of copies of the same scene rolling across the floor toward the front door. At every space in the room were more of the same spider lady, all of them dragging him across the floor, all of them trailing columns of smoke and green fire. And some, Goldstein was hitching and jerking after him, or trying to pull the flaming arm out of the spider. In a few, Dawes could see he was plainly dead, his head gone or his torso all that remained of him. In others, he wasn't there at all, only the stump of his blackening arm jutting out of the thing's mouth. That was the scene he saw a second later, when his arm snapped off just above the elbow. The sound it gave when it finally broke was something akin to crumbling, and flecks of ash fell to the ground and over Dawes, lighting on his face and chest. As he watched, all the hundreds and millions and thousands and dozens of copies of the creature coalesced into a single space overlapping and then becoming one. It burst through the front door and finally collapsed, green fire erupting through the soft spots of its body until all of it was engulfed in flame. 
Dawes lay on the floor, watching the ceiling shimmer in and out of focus with the reality he was inside of at the moment. Sometimes there was no ceiling. Sometimes there was. Sometimes, half-invisible feet stepped through his face as people in strange, animalistic masks stepped in time to music he couldn't hear. The ground began shaking in every reality he could see, and then hitched once underneath him with such force he went momentarily airborne. Then there was only one ceiling over his head. Then there was only the one ceiling over his head. Pain slipped back into his mind, and he screamed, rolling onto his side and clutching the stump of his arm to his chest. Squeezing it didn't make it feel any better, and the remnants felt almost too hot to touch. Gentle, firm hands pushed him down against the floor. He felt a pressure in his chest, just below his collarbone, and a syrupy sort of sweetness flooded his body. A face came into view. A woman he'd become well acquainted with in the years since they'd found him scumming up and down the west coast after Nevada. Hi, Abella, he said. Hello, Dawson, she said in her light Mexican accent. Your arm's gone. He nodded slowly, not bothering to look. You need another one? He almost said yes, thinking she was talking about his missing limb. Then she held a second morphine ampoule so he could see, and he shook his head. I have enough bad habits, he said. She shrugged and nodded, and then she and a man he'd never met before helped him to his feet. A dozen men and women surged past them, all wearing fairly nondescript work clothes and carrying submachine guns. They spread out into the house, flashlights flashing over the intricate scrollwork in the halls. Dawes stopped walking and leaned into Abella. Tell them to stay off the stairs, he said. She nodded to the other man holding up Dawes and he darted off to relay the order. That's the transition point. I have no idea how it works, though, everything. It happened so fast. It's fine, Abella said. You did your best. The other guys, he whispered, shaking his head. It was bad. I know, Abella said. Just breathe. You did more than we could have ever asked of you. You can rest now. She led him outside to a rock where he could sit and watch the others as they took control of the property. In the distance, on the other side of Portland, smoke and fire rained down the side of Mount Rainier. Some of the faster flows had already reached the city, and he could see a few of the buildings slipping sideways on their foundations and sinking into the conflagration. Nothing you can do about that, Abella said. She had brought back a medical kit bag and opened it beside him. She treated and bandaged the stump as they spoke. It had already begun leaking blood and some foul, yellow jelly from the wound. That's a lot of pain, Dawes said. I know people down there. He thought of the story he'd told the guys on that first day. It had all been bullshit except one part. He did have a girlfriend. And she lived down there. It will all be worth it, though. You'll see, Abella said. Eventually, she left him to see to the interior of the mansion. Dawes sat in silence for a long time. After Bookie's body was brought out on a sheeted stretcher, after the glowing orange and black cloud of death had fully covered Portland, even after the medical ambulance had come to pick him up, he sat there and looked over what he'd done, what he'd caused, 
and found himself unable to think of a single thing to say. It was an old voice that finally broke his reverie. He turned to see an aged woman in a crisp gray suit standing beside him. She too looked out over the destruction, her eyes cool and quiet to any emotion. I'm sorry, Dawes said. The drug slurred his words. What did you say? She looked at him, raising her eyebrows in surprise as though she hadn't noticed him. When she spoke, her words were colored with some unplaceable Slavic accent. So it begins, she replied, repeating herself, nothing more. She laid a hand on his shoulder and then stepped past the ruined circular altar in front of the house. He watched her stand in silhouette against the dull glow of Portland as it burned to the ground. And seeing the way the feather tattoo on her hand seemed to glow in the firelight, he knew she was right. Well, folks, that was The Move. What did you think of it? Have you ever had or... Do you still have a grueling, thankless manual labor job? Have you ever lost your arm to an imago of Zagroff because your Corsican tattoo unexpectedly burst into flames when you rammed it down her throat? Let us know in the West Side Fairy Tales Horror and Lit Club on Facebook. The Horror and Lit Club is a place where fans of the show, some call themselves Westsiders or even Westies now, can talk to each other about the show, the recommendations, and anything else that comes to mind. The only real rules are don't be a dick to each other and try to keep your posts focused on horror and literature. But even that last rule is pretty soft, so come on by. Just search for the West Side Fairy Tales Horror and Lit Club on Facebook. Hey folks, if you didn't know, each episode of the West Side Fairy Tales takes something in the ballpark of 40 plus hours of work. Most of that is writing, reading, rereading, rewriting, and editing again and again until the stories are just where we want them. On top of that is the additional time sink of recording, editing, and all the miscellaneous extra things like paying taxes, marketing, and website and podcast hosting fees. There are a lot of ways to support our work here, and the easiest by far is to just buy yourself a nice new official logo mug from the merch store at westsidefairytales.com merch. Like I said during the promo break, we have plenty of options, and it's a great way to support the podcast and get a little something you can hold in your hands in return. For those of you who hate advertisements on podcasts, for just a dollar you can get rid of those and not have to worry about hearing them ever again, at least on the West Side Fairy Tales. All you have to do is go to patreon.com slash westsidefairytales and subscribe at the $1 level. That'll give you access to an RSS feed you can plug into most any podcatcher to listen to the special episodes at your convenience. For $5, you get access to the monthly ebooks of the episodes, as well as an entire backlog of story PDFs from the last season and a half, as well as access to the exclusive Behind the Story episodes, in which I discuss the creation of this month's story and talk at length about a million other things that sort of kind of inspired me to write it. And of course, the most important thing you can do to support us is share this show. Don't sweat leaving a review on Apple, but if you could share this episode on Reddit, on Facebook or Twitter groups, or even in forums you're a member of, it helps the show immensely. So if you like the West Side Fairy Tales, please, please, please share this episode with the world. 
Next month, we journey to the great expanse of space, where an industrial accident on a manufacturing station orbiting a remote blue star kicks off a series of events that might lead to the end of humanity throughout the galaxy. I hope you'll join us next month for our story, Dog Star. And until then, as always, stay safe out there. The West Side Fairy Tales is written, read, scored, and produced by Tyler Bell. Episode artwork by Yui Breedlove. All content here in copyright 2020, WSF Productions, LLC. Something's not quite right in the quiet mountain town of Targrady, West Virginia. Months after a local teen was lynched in the dead of a hot summer night, two men stand charged with murder in what the majority opinion considers to be an open and shut case. But Adelaide Stevenson, a young crime reporter from Charleston, is finding out the smallest cracks in the official narrative run far, far deeper than she could have ever expected. Join Adelaide and West by God as she navigates small town secrets, the dubious ethics of her own profession, and the dark whispers of an ancient creature, known to some as the Witching Woman, who prowls the shadowed hollers that lie between night and nightmare. Sent on overnight assignment to cover the start of the trial, Adelaide quickly realizes the story she's been told, and been telling, doesn't make sense. Cryptic assertions of a concrete alibi are emailed to her by the family of the accused. Nobody in town seems comfortable discussing the basic facts of the case, and the murder she's been writing about wasn't the only tragic death this summer. Adelaide extends her stay against the wishes of her editor, and her investigations take a complicated and dangerous turn as she discovers the true depths of the mysteries surrounding Targrady. The only real evidence from the night of the murder may lie in the hands of a notorious local crime family led by an enigmatic woman known as the Fetid Queen. Local authorities seem to grow more hostile by the hour, and even Adelaide's own career might not survive this assignment. Featuring an eclectic cast of characters ranging from violent and horrifying to outlandish and fabulous, West by God is a must-read novel for anybody who enjoys Twin Peaks, Stephen King, and all the creepy places you find just off the path in the woods. It is the debut novel of Tyler Bell, a USMC infantry combat veteran, former crime and courts reporter for the Charleston Daily Mail, and creator of the award-winning West Side Fairy Tales horror and dark fiction podcast due for release by Henlow Press in October of 2023. Learn more at westsidefairytales.com slash westbygod.